Craig Unger, founder and CEO of Hyperproof, an expert when it comes to building tech businesses. Craig, it's wonderful to have you with us. Uh, great to be here, Alondra. Thanks for having me. So I'm going to share a quick uh, bio on you, a little background for everyone. So just sit back, uh, relax, mm -hmm. and then we'll jump right back into the questions here. So Craig Unger, the founder and CEO of Hyperproof, is an expert in building technology businesses and teams. Prior to founding Hyperproof, Craig co-founded Techstars company Asuqua in 2012, which disrupted the low-code integration space after raising a seed round, Series A and Series B. Asuka was sold to Okta in 2018. Craig started his career at Microsoft and spent 21 years as a lead there, initially as PM working on Excel, designing pivot tables, among other features. Afterwards, he spent five years as GM leading the development of Microsoft Access. Later, he spent five years as GM leading Dynamic CRM, Microsoft's first online enterprise SaaS business. Uh, you grew Dynamic CRM double digits for 20 straight quarters before leaving Microsoft in 2012 to pursue your entrepreneur ambitions at first at Asuqua and now at Hyperproof. Uh, Craig has 32 years of experience building software used by hundreds of millions of people around the world. Very cool. Super excited to have you. Uh, my first, my first question. So I want to, um, you, you have, I love the fact that not, not only do you have obviously the entrepreneurial journey, but even before getting started, you, you worked for Microsoft for quite some time and you worked on some incredible uh, 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 products and, and teams. And so my first question to you is, um, what are the lessons that you took away from working at a big company, uh, before starting your own, uh, are there any skill sets that are helpful? Uh, there are many people that immediately after school start their companies and have been entrepreneurs most of their lives. You've, you've had the access to both worlds and having corporate done corporate beforehand. So any any pros and cons you can think of doing it that way? Well, great question, Alejandro. I mean, what I think it's really beneficial to have experience both. Uh, and that's what I tell my kids, you know, at a big company teaches you a different set of things. And I think you can argue a little bit of what, what the right ordering is. Some people might say, do the startup first because, you know, you're younger, you don't have as much, uh, maybe you haven't had your family yet. Um, uh, I, I think it could work both ways. I mean, when it comes to the larger company, Microsoft was an amazing place to get trained. Uh, I think the big thing that just has to be said about the advantage of doing that first is the discipline, right? There's just a lot of discipline when you're, uh, it's kind of the, the, the both sides of the coin here. It's the, the plus and the minus because they're making very large investments, right? Mm -hmm. You're, you have discipline, you're going out, you're talking to tons of customers, right? You're doing a lot of market research, you're looking at competitors, um, and you're really thinking hard about what the best ways are to approach a market. Those skills are incredibly valuable when you do the startup. Now, the counter argument is to say, well, you have a pretty big net at a company, you know? So if a certain investment that Microsoft's making in a new area doesn't pay off, it's not really gonna, you know, hurt the company in its, in its fundamental way as it will if you're the founder, right? And then. Uh, you have a problem or you need to do an extreme pivot or whatever. So I think it's both. I mean, you get the discipline, but you are used to working with a lot more in the way of resources. And so I think that's mm. the hard part is that you come out of a big company and you're like, well, I've got to do things on the cheap. 
Um, and then there's just some different, you know, there is some different uh, skill sets and uh, kind of feedback that we get used to when we're in a large company. We're very used to being able to have meetings and be uh, able to go into new organizations and introduce yourself on the basis of the organization that you're in. And basically you have Microsoft on your card, people are gonna take a meeting, right? And then when you leave and you're trying to get those meetings to happen just uh, with you and your own experience and it's just bad <laughs> and maybe you're representing a company that you know, you're know you founding that they never heard of, or maybe your LinkedIn says stealth, right? Which a lot of right. times, you know, so it's stealth, uh, you know, uh, startup. Well, it's hard to get those meetings, you get the door slammed in your face. And I think there's a certain type of personality that's able to deal with that, where it's difficult to deal with that after coming from a large company. People feel like a lot of their net, their, a lot of their personal kind of worth and cachet is built up in the organization. So I think, you know, it, it's, it's probably just what you expect. There's big pluses, some big things to unlearn when you come out of a large company. And then you've got kind of the opposite set of lessons from a small company. It could probably work in either order. I'm curious when you said, I, I love when you said things to unlearn, what's, what's, what's one or what's something that, that you're like, okay, uh, this, the minute I started the company, I had to unlearn this. There's actually a lot. I mean, the big one that you'll hear a lot of people talk about is the budget. Like you don't have the budget that you had right. at a large company. So you have to do things on the cheap. You have to be more agile. You have to be willing maybe to constitute the team with maybe some offshore or get your uh, first um, prototypes done on the cheap or whatever it is. There's different ways you need to express yourself. You know, you're, you're now creating a pitch, right? And the formalization of a pitch doesn't really exist in that exact way in large companies. Of course, you have to express your ideas there too. Um, I'll give you a little bit more specifics there. There are some mechanics around the pitch where you have to integrate both the idea and the thought of how you're going to change the market with a very clear-eyed view of the financial model that the company could grow into, meaning mm. what are the key KPIs and things like that. And when you have a pretty big benefactor like Microsoft is a large company investing in your idea, they're not really as concerned with the specifics of the KPIs in the first three or four years. They want to take the idea and they want to bring it to you know, 100 million, 500 million people, right? right? So there's a discipline that, you know, around how you express your ideas that you have to unlearn with some new things that you have to learn in order to do the pitch. Um, but then there's there's also other pieces. Those are just a couple examples. What what inspired you to take that entrepreneurial leap? You're at Microsoft for a number of years. You did some incredible work there. And then what led you then to say, let me leave and I want to start uh, a Suqua. Yeah, it's a very, it's, it's actually a pretty deep question and I'll try to keep the answer short. I mean, basically growing up, my, my family were World War II survivors, Holocaust survivors. And um, my grandparents came to the US with very little, nothing really. And uh, my grandfather ended up working his way up from kind of carrying furniture on his back to owning his own and his own company, a couple of them actually. And, you know, did well enough to give himself a nice retirement. And I saw what he went through. He was up at 435. He had to drive from Brooklyn to Manhattan every day and back. And, you know, he was asleep within minutes after finishing dinner at night. And he really worked himself very hard for the sake of the family. That's that's both my grandmother, my mom and my uncle and us. We actually lived in the same house in just a little di different apartment. Um, and I appreciated what he did. And he set a bar that I said, hey, you know, I've got to really... Um, work at that level and also um, challenge myself at that level to do 
what I can do for my family and also try to make impact. I think those, I think when I get mm. down to it, those are the two things that drive me. So when I first got out of college, I actually was already enough in touch with that, that I thought I would stay at Microsoft until I was 30. And I started there at 21. So I was gonna be there nine or 10 years. And it just turned out I had a really good run at Microsoft, this wonderful company, is a wonderful company. And I learned a ton and kept learning, kept going. Um, I probably would have left maybe five years earlier, but I also went through a divorce and I wanted to give my kids some security and normalcy. Mm. I didn't want to change everything on them. So I, that I might have left at 36, 37. And then uh, at Microsoft, I was 42. I just done five years of leading dynamic CRM. And I said, it's not now, when? You know, um, mm. luckily there was enough financial stability. So it was, it was a luxury that I had to be able to take the risk. Kids were getting old enough to the point where, you know, I think it, it would be a, a good example for them and B, they would understand what I'm doing. And so I just decided to do it, if not now, when? And I've been on the journey for 11 years now. I love that, that everyone has a has a certain idea and plan and then life hits you in the face. <laughs> what is that? Oh, I know yeah. Mike Tyson has a, has a, had a better quote on that of like, you can be prepared and then, then you get hit, fit, get, you get a punch in the, the face. face. Yeah, right. Exactly. exactly. Um, but that's, that's, that shows a lot that um, even when you go through that and, and I feel like as an entrepreneur uh, so much of the personal is also integrated with the professional because like every, you know, like you're, you're giving it your all it's, it's super personal, right? Uh, you know, this totally. is like a, a second baby, not your actual family, right? right. And your kids, but like a second baby that you're creating. So, so there's, there's a lot, there's a lot in there. So when you did do that move, when did you, uh, I know you, you went through Techstars with Asuka. When did you, uh, we're talking now 2012. It was right at the beginning of 2013, around March, where there was a Microsoft sponsored Azure Techstars program in Seattle and awesome. uh, we were picked there were 10 of us companies in there and we went through that with us how how was it how was like for founders that are thinking of applying to a, a, an accelerator uh what would your advice be and again it doesn't have to be tech stars uh it, it could just be an a, any accelerator out there obviously tech stars y combinator 500 stuff their their accelerators are well more well known um, and have been out there way longer, but any, any advice that you have for founders? Yeah. I mean, I, I, my advice is it's interesting now that I've done a couple startups because the way I'm looking at tech stars is that, um, and I wasn't looking at it this way before. First of all, I'm very glad that we did it, but I, and I'm sure most people are looking at it like, well, how will it help the success of this particular, uh, endeavor? Will it accelerate me? And will I be able to get, you know, maybe funding at the end of it? What will I learn and all that? And by all those measures, without telling your viewers, because they've all been through it and they already, you know, they know there's so much to be learned and so much, you know, uh, to gain by going through it. So we had a great experience that way. Um, now I look at it a little bit more like, okay, well, what it really was more, even more so than an investment in Azuka was it was an investment in us, in mm. me and my co-founder, because it, the lessons that I learned there around how to pitch, what are investors looking for? And just kind of what are some of the right rails to kind of stay between as you're building your startup and what's expected of you? You, you, you don't want to spend a year or two or three uh, sacrificing as a founder and then only then just hear that, you know, lesson where you say, why didn't I learn that earlier, right? And so 
not only did it help with Azuqua, but it did make um, doing hyperproof much easier. I mean, the rest of the Azuqua experience helped a lot too on doing hyperproof, but obviously Techstars helped uh, as well. Now, does that mean everybody should do it? I didn't do it for hyperproof. Mm. I did it for Azuqua. So I think there becomes a certain point where you get enough experience with it, where you're like, hey, you know, I, I don't need to go through it again because I learned from it just the same way that I might not go do an undergraduate degree um, again. Uh, so very much a big fan. Uh, and for, I think many, and maybe most people, it's probably a good thing to do, uh, unless you just have, for whatever reason, you were able to get a lot of startup experience outside of an accelerator. It was with, uh, it was with Azuqua that, that you, you, you built it, you grew it, and then, uh, you sold it. Correct. So what, what are some lessons, um, in your experience at Azuqua that, you you feel you learned that you applied now to hyperproof and i know we'll get into hyperproof and we'll talk about yeah. what it is and who the customers are and what it does and all that but before that that asuka right. experience um you know any any particular lessons that you took from that that you applied to hyperproof yeah i mean so structurally in terms of kind of how you think about the company there was a lot there i mean one is um the founder situation. So do you want a co-founder or not? What are really the ways to think about that? There's, you know, books to be written that have been written and, you know, you can write a book on it too. There's, um, there was an interesting book I read called Founder's Dilemma. I think would be an interesting oh, read. That's a great your, book. Mm -hmm. audience. Yeah, because it's a short read and it really, it, what I found useful about it is that it gets to the motivations of why you're doing a company. And by the way, I don't know if they still do that in Techstars, but back when I did Techstars 10 years ago, they took a whole you know, did a weekend away. And one of the exercises on one of the days was uh, a questionnaire, a very deep questionnaire that you and your co-founder would fill out. And it would ask you uh, questions that would guide you to know whether you're both in it for the same reasons. It's not the I right love that. Reasons, the same reasons. I'll give you an example. I remember from 10 years ago, there was a question along the lines of, uh, in order to be successful, if you had to pivot your company to sell uh, makeup to teenage girls, would you do that? And they know they're giving this so totally completely different from what the current business model was or whatever it is that you're exactly. Having. Yeah. And it gets to whether are you in it, you know, are you in it for the success? Are you in it for the notoriety? Are you in it for the impact to a particular industry or a particular problem? And there's not necessarily a right answer, but if you're co-founding, you want to make sure that you're aligned on some of those things. So, you know, so so thinking about that, how to align, because if you get off to a poor start or you structure it in the wrong way. And those kinds of decisions and why you're doing it and who you're going to do it with end up being probably more important than like that, you know, when you're thinking about the exact percent that this person gets or that person gets, you know, those aren't the things that are going to, you know, unless they're really imbalanced and not the things that are going to really hurt the company in the long term. Did you so, have, did you have a number of uh, founders? There's two of us. There's just me and one of them. Yeah, me and one other. And we, we basically aligned. We were interesting for a few reasons. We also overlapped in some interesting skill sets, which is another lesson. He and I, a good and bad, it's not, it's not a clear, it's not a clear lesson, but more just yeah. like something to, something to kind of think about is that he and I both had skills in some GTM, but he had more than I did. And then product and strategy, and I had more than he did there. Mm. But it was a strength of us as a team and it was a weakness as a team. So the obvious strength is that we had the other one to, you know, to, to bounce ideas off of and they were educated on the matter. But the tough part was where do you draw your boundaries, especially when, you know, the success, like you said, is so crucial. You eat, sleep and breathe it. 
So maybe he would or I would get too involved in what he was doing or be too opinionated. On, let's say I was too opinionated on what he was doing or the opposite, right? So drawing those boundaries was tougher. Um, there was definitely some other lessons around how to think about measuring the business. That actually is the biggest lesson I've learned really at Hyperproof more than Azuqua. I've gotten much, much more sophisticated about how to think about modeling the business over uh, any period, you know, next three to five years. And what are the KPIs that matter and some of those things. Oh, I love that. I, I, yeah. I would love to get into that uh, in, sure. in, in a little, the minute we we jump into Hyperproof. Before jumping into Hyperproof, one more question. Yeah. With Asuqua, it was acquired by Okta in 2018. Um, any particular advice to founders that um that are thinking about uh, an acquisition uh, you know of selling or um you know it, how did that journey unfold and were there any particular pitfalls that you say you know let's avoid next time if i ever went through this i would tell other founders to you know take a look at this avoid yeah. this I don't think I have much on the avoid side because I think it was a pretty good sale the way it worked out, but I do have some lessons and some things to think about. I think generally one question that people uh, struggle with is should I sell or not? And what's reasonable? Um, what's a reasonable way to make that decision? Now, if the, if the company's in trouble and you know, you just have to sell and the decision gets made for you, but if you have the flexibility where you may not have to sell, then um, one of our VCs gave a very sage bit of wisdom again, 10 years ago that I still remember today, which is to say that if you as a founder or co-founder are, you know, knowing how optimistic you are about your, your business, um, if you see that what's being offered is more realistically than you can build, you know, realistically and optimistically mix um, than what you can build in the next two years, right? Then you should probably consider selling mm. it because you, you absolutely have to take these stockholders into uh, account. There's obviously risk that you won't get to where you're going, et cetera. So that doesn't mean you have to sell it, but it means you need to really kind of think about it when it's more than even somewhat optimistically you can build in two years. I thought that was a good rule of thumb. Beyond that, um, I would say that, you know, there's a very wide range of different types of structures for how you sell. You can sell to um, somebody who's looking to pick up the assets as more of a, of, uh, you know, kind of a troubled sale. But selling to uh, private equity is a very different thing. Now we didn't we didn't sell to private equity, but uh, enough experience with that, and even with private equity folks who have interest in hyperproof, and it's a different thing. Like what you're doing is you're trying to go after some economies of scale. You're rolling up with similar companies. You know that you're managing it to a much stricter sense of the KPIs, and you just have to get involved, knowing that uh, if that's you know what you want to do. And I think those tend to be more aligned with financial outcomes. Like you think about what's the financial outcome I can deliver if I do this. The other, the other one, which um, is, is a little bit, it's what I prefer would be selling to a strategic, right? So you have a bigger company that can take your company, your company, and they can magnify it because you have 10, 15, five salespeople, whatever. They've got 10,000 salespeople, mm. right? So they can actually bring it to many more people. And therefore they can actually, uh, pay more than PE firms would pay because they're not looking at strictly financially based on the business today, but they're looking at where they can scale it to. And so you can get a referendum on how important they think your business is to their scale by what kind of multiples they're willing to pay. And those can be very interesting outcomes because you can still retain even more so than with private equity, you could retain 
the mission that you started and mm. still try to keep the impact of what you're doing. And in fact, if done right, and it's not always done right by any stretch, but if done right, you can maintain a lot of the people. For instance, there's a pretty big chunk of the previous uh, Azuqua team that still works at Opta. Opta's a great company, treats everybody real well. And everybody That's has awesome. great things to say about it. And so they're doing great. And my co-founder, for instance, has been there far longer than he's needed to be, maybe twice as long as he actually needed to be. So, you know, obviously they're treating him very well. Right. So I like strategic is where it, it, just to summarize, I would, if, I mean, I don't build a company to sell it as a goal. I would love to keep it independent as long as I can. But if you are looking at selling, I think the strategic option is the one that's most attractive to me. I love that. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that and being super honest on that. Um, that's that's very helpful for for a lot of founders that might be going through that experience. Uh, I want to jump into Hyperproof. Would love to learn a little bit about the the story behind it. Uh, who? Let's just begin with like who? What is Hyperproof? Who are its customers, and what are you helping them solve? Yeah, sure. Hyperproof is a, a compliance operations platform. So think of it as what, the way I envisioned it back when we started was it's like a new type of enterprise application. People understand human resource management systems, CRMs, ERPs. Well, we have a compliance operations system. It's built like other enterprise applications, meaning it's got a, an opinionated schema of data. It's got processes and workflows that run. It's got analytics that run. It's, it's, it's built with a customizable platform under it. But what does it do? It lets you operate your compliance program through the course of the year. I mean, the core problem that you know I was solving was when I was at Microsoft, we had some very invasive audits we needed to do that the government had asked that we do. And we had very stiff penalties if we uh, didn't meet our commitments, a million dollars a user a day. And that's when I was managing the Windows Live ID. A million dollars a user a day yes. if you got was, this wrong. If we got it wrong. And we had a hundred million unique users in our services back in the day. I can only imagine what it is today. This is almost 20 years ago. Wow. So it, it was the kind of fine that would have been uh, absolutely uh, destructive to the company. And at that point, I didn't really know a lot about compliance. I was the product person on Windows Live ID and on our billing systems and all the other things we were doing to build our cloud infrastructure. Uh, and so when it came time to do these audits, our team came to a halt. Everybody was running around trying to collect evidence, trying to get the, you know, everything we needed to prove that we were doing the right thing. Then you submit it to the audit, you kind of pray, right? And there's a lot of back and forth, and, you know, and, and there just was no tooling to help. You're ending up using a lot of email, a lot of spreadsheets that list out what you need, a lot of, you know, conversations with people, you know, in person, um, uh, and maybe using SharePoint or using another file share type system. But there really wasn't, you know, a, a, a workflow associated with it. So we entered... The market with a pretty sophisticated platform, but a methodology that we call compliance operations that allows you to see how your, your company is operating every day with respect to compliance. It's really valuable because even if you get through the audits just in the kind of just-in-time mode, when you're done, most of the team is tired of thinking about it. They're not going to think about it for the next six or eight months, right. and your security and compliance stance is going to devolve. So with Hyperproof, obviously one day, the day after the audit, the same as the day before the audit, you, know, you can see it all. You can collect everything in an automated way that's possible to be automated. You can involve all the people in the business. So there's a strong human workflow component to it, tasking and those things. And so what we're helping people do is scale up their companies and their compliance, which they need to, especially as they go into different markets, more efficiently and more effectively with an application that functions in probably a way that's a bit more modern than people would think 
a bit slicker than people would think you can have in this space. Was uh, I, I didn't, I, I didn't get to see this, but Asuqua was was it targeting enterprise as well or no? You know, it was similar. Azuka started um, in mid-market and grew to enterprise, and that's what we've done at Hyperproof. So we started, to your customer question, we started in mid-market, very tech-forward companies, uh, a lot of security companies like Malwarebytes, Fortinet, AppGate, Fordrop, uh, Credit Karma, Outreach, um, uh, Lookout, a bunch of others, ton, ton, tons of mid-market companies. And then we started building a lot of enterprise capabilities where you would actually take a compliance program and you'd administer it and manager organization across multiple subsidiaries or multiple different tech teams and really make those workflows really, really sing and also allow greater customizability to the very specific workflows that larger organizations need. And then we started signing up some larger companies, 3M and Motorola, Instacart, those are customers, um, just a, a bunch of others, uh, Walter's Kluwer, just a, a number of very large companies. The first customers that you signed for Hyperproof, um, had they been from previous experiences? Have been, had there been individuals that were leading those companies already that you had met from previous experiences or it was very cold outreach, here you go, this is what it is, this is what we do. And you know what what was that first customer and what did, were you were you still kind of testing? Was that still very yeah. much a theory? or you're like, no, this is you know like we, this I've seen this before, this is how it works. To key, actually, what you're asking there, Alejandro, is a key part of the Hyperproof story. So when I got started, what I did is I had the thesis that this was important to build a, a business application around it, build more process around it, et cetera. And so I ended up outlining what I thought the value propositions were, what some of the capabilities could be, but very much an on-paper approach. It wasn't yet prototyped. It was just kind of more of in the form of discussion of what are the problems you're having? Here's the way I see it. What do you think? Here's some capabilities I think could help, that kind of thing. Um, so it was pretty low friction to actually uh, kind of come up with uh, a bit of an agenda for a discussion, if you will, or an interview questionnaire. And then um, I went out and I, I I spoke to the better part of 50 different organizations. So somewhere between 35 and 50 companies that uh, some of them might have been through uh, connections I had, but a lot of them were cold outreach, which is where you get a lot of door slammed in your face. So, mm -hmm. um, so it was only after about 35 or 40 of those interviews were done that I decided, okay, we've got the data that supports the thesis. And then Hyperproof went from kind of an idea to I started recruiting people in, started looking at funding, et cetera. And then six months later, when our chief revenue officer joined, so like our head of engineering and product have been with us since the beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, and then six months later, which is already almost five years ago, we hired our chief revenue officer, Matt Lato. And when he came in, he, I, uh, to interview, I gave him, almost a hundred interviews that we did with prospects. They weren't customers. And I said, you know, if you're trying to figure out whether this is a good place for you to spend your time, whether there's a real need here, read these. He took them back over a weekend. And on Monday, he said, he just wanted to join. <laughs> really? That's yeah. how, when did you, when did you make the decision? You said six months later uh, for a chief revenue officer, uh, why bring a chief revenue officer? And at what moment in time, were you exactly, I mean, you had already signed up a couple, uh, a number of customers or no. where were you? We were still working on the product. It was still definitely something that was in, um, in just uh, very early beta, but 
we wanted somebody to uh, you know start attacking the market, start looking at uh, you know taking the value propositions that we were delivering and starting testing them, starting thinking about how to market and how to position it. So the reason why we decided to to go with a chief revenue officer, and and I don't think you have to do this. This is it's there's different options. We wanted one home for sales and marketing uh, because we didn't want to have this in a lot of organizations. There's tension between those two. We didn't want to start off with that. We wanted to have it built in a way that uh, everybody was kind of pulling in the same direction. And we wanted to do the research also at the same time in both sales and marketing. And I didn't have time to do to continue to drive that forward and drive the product forward and strategy and funding. So that's what we decided to do CRO. Now, if you know, another very reasonable way to do it, especially if you're in product-led growth, is maybe you do start off even just with marketing. I know people have done marketing and really focused on demand gen and then converted on the web. That's a great way to do it, but it could be a different kind of product. It could be more of a uh, uh, B, I'll say B to C, but it could be B to B, but mm-hmm. bought by an individual in a department on their credit card. If you're actually going after true B to B, it's going to be a bigger sale. You're going to go through procurement. You're going to be doing invoicing. Now, all of a sudden, you have some real issues in how you're going to structure the sale uh, of your software. So it just depends what your product is. And it also depends whether your product-led growth, and it depends what part of the market you serve. So I don't think I have one answer, but I think it worked well for us. I love I love that you knew exactly your responsibility within the product, within the strategy. A lot of founders um, leave the, the, the selling for themselves first, right? Uh, and I love that you're, 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 you brought in a chief revenue officer uh, and I'm guessing it was someone that had experience with this type of market, right? Exactly what you said. Like if you are going after an enterprise, to... it's a whole yeah. nother, it's a whole nother animal of of right. approaching. Yeah, this individual, Matt Lato, slightly different domain, but yeah, he just come off a very big job where he was in charge of selling a, a very, very enterprise focused product, which was an energy trading of all things. So, um, but, and, and he had done professional services before and had some clients expertise before. So I think, yeah, that was important. Now, of course, as a founder, I always continued and still continue to sell a lot. So you'll still sell, but there's a difference between knowing that you need to be involved with all the big customers and all the big deals and taking responsibility for every deal and every bit of commercial Mm. activity that comes in. In fact, you might argue that you're better off having somebody deal with some of, uh, with, with, the entirety of it so that even in selling, you can actually focus on where it matters. You, you, uh, going back to uh, something that you mentioned before, which was with Hyperproof, you you applied a, a number of lessons from Asuka where it came to understanding three years down the line, four years down the line, and and setting up those goals, setting those up those KPIs. What, what are things that... I, this by itself is awesome. Actually, I love I love learning that you brought in a chief revenue officer. You know, before these these signing up these major accounts. Um, but what what are what are other ways in which you applied uh, these the types of KPIs and that that you think really helped out? Well, I think on the product side, you start to get a, a very quick orientation towards what truly is product market fit, and I think you know. It, when you when you think about it, it's really a mixture of what you're doing in the product, what the value prop is, and 
how you're building the product mixed with how easy or how much friction there is into getting it sold. So it's it, it really spans across product and, and across go to market. So there's a very high level, I would say gut level um, uh, feeling for whether you're approaching product market fit, which I think most companies rely on before they get, they get very um, quantitative about it. But then when you start to see that, yeah, you do have customers, you're acquiring them, you're acquiring them at some pace. It may not be the pace you want, but at some mm -hmm. pace, you start to look at it more uh, analytically and say, hey, okay, what is the friction? What is the cost to acquire? What is the cost to serve? What kind of churn rates would we be looking at, right? Do we have a product that where our customers give us license to expand with them or are we more of a point solution, right? That's another key one. And you start to look at a lot of these variables and say, how do you take what we built so far, right? And structure it into a business in a way by the time you feel like you can see the signs of product fit. So I'm already saying you see the signs of it, right? Mm -hmm. What do you have in front of you? You have a dish. If you're a cook, you have a dish. Now the job is to take the dish and build around it and make it into a meal. And I think that part of it is extremely, extremely under um, recognized and appreciated by founders. Mm. I think many founders think that at that time they'll bring in the business people or something like that. And then the business <laughs> will just start to take off. But the truth is, is that a lot of the pressures that, that happen when you start to look at efficiency, they'll come right back into the area you as a founder might think that you want to spend your time on, which is product, how it gets built, and what are the specific differentiators and value props. It's not just throw it over the wall and take it and go market it. And so I think there is a really important place for a founder to dig in. Now, in our case, we had a chief revenue officer, which again, gave me a little bit more room to actually look holistically across and say, how do we build up this business together? Sometimes you're asking the GTM folks to do things that are kind of stop gaps for, for the product not having what it needs. And sometimes it's the opposite. You ask the product to do things that it really maybe are a more one-off or custom in order to get a big deal, right? So you, you need to have somebody who's looking across it and who's able to speak on behalf of the business versus either the product or even a specific deal mm -hmm. or market uh, in, opportunity. In in your industry, what has been something that, uh, what channel has been the most efficient when it comes to acquiring customers? I know enterprises, relationships, right? Like it's, it's a lot of time spent on building relationships. A lot of time, it's a longer sales cycle, uh, but are there certain channels that have worked for you so far? Um, and what what would those be? The most efficient channels in in the early stages, um, I th I think that you should be invested in if you're doing it right. Um, the one would be organic. So basically, and it's you'll hear this all over the place, which is you have to invest in a pretty strong content library. It helps the brand on a ton of different levels. Like for instance, we started doing the uh, uh, IT compliance benchmark study, and I think our when we were a year and a few months old, it was across a thousand different uh, prospects and customers asking about all the trends. We were like 15 months, one of our biggest expenditures. And we've wow. done it ever since. And that creates a really important piece of content. But of course, it's not limited to that. There's so much more to do. And that, of course, helps because, you know, it just helps on getting uh, the brand elevated and, and, and all the inbound because getting people in based on the content is just a lot more effective than it is by buying keywords or anything like that or anything or any other things that you'll do in the early stage, like PR, for instance, to elevate your brand. PR is more about getting a particular uh, message out at the moment. It's not really going to 
help with your overall marketing efficiency in any any real way. So um, so definitely on the organic side is a big one. Um, but the other one would also be if you have the opportunity to, and we've always been very focused on this, but it takes a long time, is partners. Partners right now, if you look at partners, they're actually pretty efficient for us. Now, we haven't scaled them totally out yet, but that's really what you want out of a partner. You want them to bring you in leads in an efficient way. They can share in by getting discounts or whatever, um, or even uh, you know some type of spiffing and getting some of the, the, the mm. revenue that you get. Um, you know, you can orient it towards first year revenue versus the subscription, whatever it is, but getting them uh, involved, I think is, is super important. So right now we're in the process of trying to scale up our partner channel, but we think it will in the long term be the most efficient channel for us. I love that. Along with the study, uh, any uh, events, whether it's your own that you host or conferences that are major for you, is that is that a thing you dedicate a lot it of is. time and resources on? It is. We were a little, so, so those are the most efficient ones, but we do the range. We do the gamut. Like we do, you know, we buy keywords. We're very active in Captera and G2 crowd where we were number one out of 125 companies in the industry uh, wow. three months ago. Um, and we do events. Now we were stunted in our events because our first couple of years was COVID. So we got, we built up the event muscle only over the last two years. And it turns out that in our market, it, it tends to be very effective, especially for us to connect with enterprise customers. When, uh, is there a, just to give it a shout out, is there an event coming up soon that, that it, your own, I guess that, that, uh, uh that you're hosting? We, we, we go to Gartner, we go to Isaka, we go to a bunch of events like that. Uh, we do have for the first year, uh, we have our own event, which we call, uh, uh connect uh, and the, our connect event is for our partners and it's for our customers. And so they come together. We did it in Austin, Texas, and it was great. It was our first one and nice. just loved it. We got, we were able to lay out where we're going as a company. We were able to get in feedback and it was, it was uh, small enough as our first event to be quite intimate. So we do that. Uh, we did in October. We'll likely do it every October. So, and we bring customers, partners, but also prospects there as well. It's fantastic. So that's awesome. Well, uh, Craig, anything else that uh, we didn't get to cover, but any, anything you'd like to share with the community uh, for, for us to know, might be even for talent as well. If there's certain things that you're looking at right now, certain positions, anything happy to share. Yeah. There's two, two things that I'll probably hit on here, which, um, which we didn't get a chance to chat about, but I think are important for founders or folks who are thinking about founding. So one would be, we had a very strong orientation around the culture of the company very early. So even with a dozen people, um, one of our employees, their uh, in-laws were HR consultants. We had them come in. We did a bottoms up discussion and view over days, what we wanted our culture to look like. We picked a very kind of behavior oriented culture with specific values that we wanted to tie to. Mm. And we iterated on that culture over time. And it's become a very special part of working at Hyperproof. It's felt very viscerally by the employees here. You can see it on Glassdoor. But perhaps most important, um, it may be even more loved than the product. And the product's pretty well loved. Uh, people love uh, how we treat them in customer success, how we partner with them. Um, you know, here's just an interesting little uh, little quote like or, or story. We don't, when we do our um, CSAT, you know, instead of asking very formal questions, we really get down in there with our customers. We'll ask them questions like, do you feel we have your back? Mm. It's, like it's that kind of level of connection. They're all on Slack with us. When big customer issues happen, or even really most anything of note, I see it. Not just me, everybody sees it. Mm. Like, and therefore, everybody sees how we react to it. 
And so being a customer oriented company, that's one of the values, there's other values in the culture, but that I'm just picking on one that's so important, has been so crucial to our success and how we're viewed in the industry that I think it's easy to underestimate the importance because it feels like you're just trying to survive in the beginning, but you really <laughs> have to invest in that. That's one thing. And then the only other thing I would share is sometimes we get into discussions about, you know, well, let me say it this way. Most of the time we get into discussions about the mechanics of how to found the company, what to do first, and some of those, the pitching, raising, all of those kind of things that you need to do on the journey. I think it's not talked about as often as it should be why to start a company. I think that's that's a more important question is why would you start a company? And I think people shorthand that and say, well, it must be obvious, right? You want to make some money. You want to get to be well known. Um, you know, even you want to work without a net and you want to prove something to yourself. And, and those are all mm -hmm. contributors. I'm not saying don't do it like that, that. Those are bad things. But I do think that the healthiest reason to start a company is to have an impact in a certain area and solve a particular problem. Mm. Um, and, and the reason I say that is because everybody wants the other things. The money would be great. The notoriety, all that stuff's great. But starting a company is hard. Even the biggest companies and the best companies out there, they all look like terrible ideas at, at one point, right? <laughs> Facebook looks like a horrible idea. Apple looks yeah. like a terrible idea. They all look like terrible ideas. So what gets you through the terrible idea phase is a true commitment to make an impact out there in the world. And that's the way that you will... You'll do the right thing by the company as well. You won't, for instance, just kind of look to turn it over in two years and make a few bucks. Because if you're doing that, everybody can sense that, that the company culture doesn't get built right. Mm. So in order for you to show up as your best self, you probably have to be at the company or founding the company for the best reason. Otherwise, you're constantly wearing a mask. And people, the kind of people you'll hire are incredibly smart and they'll see your mask. So mm. you have to be very genuine in why you're doing it. And then you have to get people to come along on the journey who want to go on that journey. A anything else is probably not going to make for a very healthy company overall, or at least not an enduring company. Um, I love that. That's great. Thank you uh, for, uh, for sharing the time and for sharing your experience with us. All right, man. Thanks so much for the time. Bye now. Bye-bye.